Well, let's talk to Abba for a second, okay? Thank you, Father, for uh, inviting us into your family. We could just dwell on that for a long, long time and never exhaust the wonder that you we're inside and we're we're in the fellowship of the trinity and uh, that's your kingdom and that's where what you say should be done gets done and that is just where we want to be i pray that you would help us really to want what you want jesus just as you taught us to pray Thy kingdom come, thy will be done right here, right now, just as it is everywhere else where we don't have any say over it. And so I pray that today would be a day where we take another step forward, truly, in our apprenticeship with Jesus. Please help us with this. We'll need it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, we've been talking about Jesus' uh, brilliant advice for how to flourish as a human being. Now, that seems a little odd, I suppose, but that's what Jesus promised us in John 10.10, 10, that he had come to give us life and that that life would be life to the full. Uh, sometimes you might see in the materials, or I might use the word zoe, and that's because that's the word Jesus used. Uh, for this abundant life he's speaking about. So I just want to tell you that in case I use the word, you say, what in the world's that? that? I think that's my dog's name. You know, I've had people say that to me before. So that's if I tend to say that at all, it's because that's the word that's different than uh, bios uh, for physical life. It's an it's a eternal quality of life. It's an eternal, not just, it, of course, because it's the life of Christ himself, it lasts forever. But lasting forever, it's not actually its principal characteristic. Its principal characteristic, it's the type of life that God himself has, and so naturally it's going to last. It would be indestructible. But uh, that's what it's talking about, and that's the life Jesus has invited us into. Now, when we're saved, we have access to this life, and I don't mean that we ever lose it or anything like talk, talk, talking about our eternal destiny. That's not the point here. The point is that we either... Uh, live in this life with the power of Christ actually uh, motivating us and driving us and, and filling us up so that we flourish or not. And we all know from experience that the life that we experience day to day existentially is a little bit different than a Zoe. We just know that. We have to be honest with that. That's the place to start actually in our spiritual journey. Not to pretend that, oh, it's all just fantastic. Unless, of course, we've come to be the kind of person Jesus is, and then it would be. Uh, that's another thing to actually uh, try and remember. Let, I'm going to see if I, I don't know where I put my clicker in my pocket. Here's someplace. Oh, there it is. Okay, so uh, I just, just for the outline for you, those, uh, some of you weren't here, I think, yesterday, and on the very bottom line here, you'll see where you would have access to a PDF that would have uh, everything in it that you would, that's in this little book, um, that this is just, an, our, our materials here on the PowerPoint are just an outline of it, and uh, I know some of you would really like to see it in hard copy, and I'm going to see if we can figure out how to do that. 
so that some of you can have it that way. Uh, but it is accessible there at that particular uh, web address. I want to actually go back, uh, I, I think, if I can make this work again. Um, I think I want to go back. Oh, that's not what I wanted. Okay, I won't. I wanted to go back to a, uh, there we are, right there. This, uh, this line from uh, Eugene Peterson, uh, we ended with, I think we ended with this last time. And it is basically describing what a disciple is or a mathetes is. And uh, we, we don't know this too well as Christians. I mentioned yesterday that the word disciple is sort of a tired word. And so I like to use the word apprentice because that's what it really is. I'm messing you up, aren't I? Everywhere I go, I'm messing you up. Okay, so um, I'm pretty good at that, actually, messing things up. But anyway, um, the idea is that we actually take uh, the yoke of Jesus, join him as a learner, walk with him as an apprentice in order to learn to live life just as Jesus would live our life if he were living it. And you really need to be able to think about that. It's a little more than just the old WWJD bracelets that you know used to be so popular, although that was not a bad thing. It's not just a matter of what would Jesus do in any given situation, although that's certainly significant, but what kind of a person is Jesus so that we become like him, patterning our lives after his pattern of life so that we would just then naturally do what he would do. That's what he's after. He's after making little Christ. Now, if you think in the big picture of, of you know, sort of, uh, the nature of reality, as we began yesterday, you could see how clearly this makes sense. God created little images of God. And then he said, now I'm giving you charge over this planet. This is your planet. You have dominion over it. Now you don't get to decide everything about how it runs. You're always uh, uh, in dominion under me. I mean, I'm really the king of the universe, but you're my co-regents or sub-regents or whatever you want to say. This is your job. This is your privilege. This is your planet. And we didn't do so well with that, actually. But that hasn't frustrated God to give up on us. He's jumped the fence and said, I want to restore to you that role. I want to restore to you the uh, superintendence of this planet and the people within this planet. That's my goal. He had to redeem us. He had to forgive us of our sins. He, asked, he had to you know, impute righteousness to us. He said, now come on, let's get on with you becoming my partners in the rule and reign of this world. And so that's what he said to these folks just like us sitting there on the hillside, we mentioned yesterday, he said, you're the hope of the world. Now that was shocking to them. Shocking. How could this possibly be? We're just, you know, plumbers and electricians and farmers and, you know, computer techs, and, you know, this is what we do. Some of us are, we don't know how to do anything, so we're just lawyers or accountants or something, you know. <laughs>
the real question is, do we believe Jesus when he says to me, now John, I'm counting on you to partner with me to make the world right. In Romans 8, we read, what's the actual creation waiting for? It's waiting for the children of God to be revealed. It's waiting for us to actually step up and do the job with Jesus we were created to do. Jesus said to this, pe- this group of people, you're the hope of the world. Now we, we read it, and we've heard it so many times, we don't know what he's saying. He says, you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how is the earth going to get salted? If you're the light of the world, then you don't put a light under a basket. You don't snuff it out. If that happens, where's the light? It needs to be rekindled. And then Jesus goes on to say to these people who are sitting here, who have an understanding of the Old Testament that is mostly wrong. And he says to them, now, because I mean, if you can just read between the lines, you could flesh it all out a little bit. They're saying, well, now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We've all our lives been told we're not the solution. We've all our lives been told that the experts are the solution. And we just need to do what they say. And the experts, of course, were not the solution. And that's what Jesus is going to tell them. But he says, first of all, he says, now, I don't want you thinking that I'm coming to set aside the law, the commandments. Instead, he said, I've come to fulfill them. That is, I've come to actually demonstrate for you and teach you how to do what they actually say. I'm going to teach you what they say, and I'm going to show you and teach you how to do what they actually say. They were never bad advice, you see. They were always the very best advice available for how to flourish as a human being. I mean, think about the Ten Commandments right now and think about what a different world we'd have if people actually did them. So Jesus said, I haven't come to abolish the law. In fact, he said, you're you're in big trouble if you teach anybody to abolish it. That's what he said right there. But I've come to fulfill it. But he says, I need you to understand something. Now you need to rethink your thinking. Uh, That's the word repent. I need you to rethink your thinking about everything. The nature of the universe and, uh, and how you become a good person. Remember we talked about those questions yesterday? And the law addresses those things, or the commandments, or the Old Testament. What God has had to say in the past uh, is uh, not inconsistent with what he's saying now. God, who at sundry times in divers manners spoke unto the prophets by the or unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son. But it's not an inconsistent message. In fact, as you know, Jesus would go back to the Old Testament and, and show how it was all leading up to him. But that's all another, that's all another thing. We haven't yet started anything I had in mind today. But I wanted to get us back into this mindset right here that says, okay, now if I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus, it has to mean something far greater than having gone to an altar and said, yes, I confess I'm a sinner, and yes, I need the forgiveness of Christ. Yes, please, would you accept me into your family? 
Now, this is going to be a critical thing for anybody to be an apprentice of Jesus, but it doesn't follow that I've actually decided to follow him. And that's the question we're really um, trying to raise here. All right, well, let me move along or we'll never get there. We have to uh, really decide to apprentice with Jesus. So now we're going to go into, uh, we're going to cover two of these, you know, sessions, sections in the book uh, today. And the first one is being liberated from anger and contempt. So um, almost every private and public university in the Western Hemisphere has a particular uh, line inscribed somewhere on a wall. I'll start it and you'll finish it. You shall know the truth. Okay, great. Is that in the Bible somewhere? Okay. Part of that's in the Bible or that's part of what's in the Bible? Well, you shall know the truth, and the truth. Well, let's see. You're you're close. Yeah, you're close. But so that statement, though, is in the Bible. You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Yeah, that that part's in there. And do do any any idea who said it? Yeah, Jesus said it. It's a good good line, then, right? I mean, Jesus said it. (laughs) I'm very glad that it's on university walls, right? But here's the thing. And I've often heard this quoted by people who know Jesus and don't know what he was really saying. I'm going to paraphrase it for you. It's in John 8, by the way. I'm going to paraphrase it for you. But, and our brother back here was getting at this. But here's what Jesus said. If you do what I teach you to do, that will make you an apprentice indeed, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So I don't know how to do computer programming. Is there someone in here does computer programming? Anybody? Some, a little bit, or do, know something about it? I know nothing about it, okay, zero. No one is holding a gun to my head and saying, John, do not do computer programming. Now, this is critical. So just, you know, for a minute, pay attention, okay? No one is saying, John, you may not do computer programming, but I am not free to do computer programming. Nor conduct a choir, nor play a keyboard, nor play the piano, nor lots of things. Do brain surgery. The reason I'm not free to do it is because I have no clue how to do it. This is what Jesus said when he said, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. But that's not going to happen passively, and he knows that. So he said, if you actually do what I tell you to do, then you'll be my apprentice or disciple for sure and you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free so jesus is basically saying i have a course in freedom and i'm the only person really who completely understands how to teach someone to be free and i will do that but it doesn't 
It's not a hypodermic needle. You know, it's not an IV. It's not a pill you can take. Otherwise, just tell me where to buy it. You know. But that's not the way it works. And this is, that's the critical thing I wanted to, so if we're going to move forward now, um, you're, we're going to have to say, Jesus actually knows, but I'm going to have to learn. This is the thing. I have to learn. And so he says, you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. But I'm telling you, that that's not the real problem. Now, we have to believe that Jesus knows more about the human being, the human psyche, the human personality, everything about a human being than anybody else. We have to know this. We have to believe he's actually the expert, the singular expert on all of these things. And so he comes now into human history and says, I have in mind restoring, reconciling all things to myself. That's what I have in mind, and I'm going to need to sacrifice my own self for that in order to give you entrance back into this relationship. But now you're sort of, in a sense, a new Adam. You still have to learn. You still have to do it. You have to figure this out. You live in a broken world, and you're going to have to follow me. So he says, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit a, a, a murder, but I'm telling you the real problem is much deeper than murder. Here's the question. Have you wanted to? What would you do if you could get away with it? That's the problem. So he has a three-step thing that he goes through with much of what you're familiar with, and the first one is simply anger. He's, he's saying, I'm telling you that the root human evil is anger. Oh, by the way, psychiatrists all acknowledge this, but Jesus knew it long before any of them. Did you know that 80% of depression is a result of repressed anger, unresolved anger. Well, you see, Jesus is smart. He is brilliant. And he is dealing with the reality of life. He is not in some other world, you know, some, uh, some strange world. He is dealing with the reality of life. He's dealing with your family and my family, with our relationships. He's dealing with us, and he's saying, now let me tell you something. If you want to have a righteousness that exceeds the rule-keeping of the scribes and Pharisees, if you want to be the salt of the earth, you are going to have to deal first and foremost with anger. If you're not willing to deal with anger, then you are not my apprentice. It's like wanting to be, you know, a, a, a math professor at Oxford or somewhere and not knowing arithmetic. It's like uh, wanting to learn to play Bach and Beethoven and Brahms and never learn your scales. It's like learning, it's like wanting to, you know, speak Greek and not know the alphabet. Uh, you know, it's just, it's, that's the way it is. Jesus says, if you really want this, you're going to have to deal with anger. 
Now, if we were just one-on-one -on -one with each other, we could probably really get to the bottom of some of this. But I'm going to ask you to ask the Spirit to help you with this. And knowing that anger is your problem does not solve the problem. Any more than knowing that I don't, can't play the piano doesn't make me play the piano. There will have to be some actual training. And we can't do that here now in this space. But hopefully, at least, there will be an alarm go off. And you'll say, I'm going to have to get some help with this. And what will that be? And you'll go to someone who you actually think can help you with your anger. And you will, I'm not talking about, by the way, your husband's or wife's anger. I'm not talking about your children's or your parents' anger. That could be a problem, too. But I'm talking about yours. Yours. Get the beam out of your own eye first, and then maybe you can help somebody with a sliver in yours. You see, I mean, oh, that was Jesus who said that. And a little later in this same message, you see. But let's talk about this a little bit. Anger is, by the way, always a product of the thwarting of your will. Even if, with, even if it's, you're just mad at yourself or mad at a hammer because it hit your thumb accidentally, just all by itself, you know, what's wrong with that hammer? Must be it was the hammer's fault, you know. We hit our thumb with it and we throw the hammer across the room. <laughs> now just imagine for a minute what freedom there would be if you were free from anger. Just think about it. Oh my goodness. If you could remove only anger from the world, the world would be a different world. If you could remove anger from your church, it would be a different church. If you could remove anger from your family, it would be a different family. Or your workplace. If you could remove anger from your own heart, it would be different. Jesus knows this. Jesus is brilliant. He's brilliant, and he knows how to set us free. But as soon as we leave the elementary lessons, not unlearned, we don't have a lot of hope. And a whole lot of us are trying to play lifeguard with people without ever having learned to swim. By now, we all ought to be soul doctors. How many people in here have been saved at least 10 years? 20 years? 30 years? 40 years? 50 years? 60 years? Me, good, Jerry, uh, Jerry, you've been saved 60 years? Good for you, yeah. Yeah, for me, it's only 58 years for me. Here's the thing. By now, I mean, I ought to really be good at helping you. <laughs> but it doesn't work that way, does it? It doesn't work that way. We actually have to learn. Longevity doesn't do a whole lot. I guarantee you, you can think right now of some people, perhaps yourself, 
other people who have been saved a lot of years and still have not conquered this elemental principle of being an apprentice of Jesus, anger. It's the great omission, this whole business of apprenticeship. It's the great omission that we aren't doing as Jesus told us to do, teaching them to observe everything I've taught you to do. Okay, so we probably better move along a little bit here. Uh, Jesus aims for the whole person, never just the outward behavior. He's looking to change you from the inside out. The good tree that brings forth good fruit. You don't gather figs from thistles and so on and so forth. It's the vine that needs to retain, uh, remain attached to the branch, or the branch that needs to remain attached to the vine and uh, allowing the Father to prune away from us our anger, for example, the things that don't bear fruit. Think of how much energy gets expended. I love that John 15 thing, so I'm going to have a hard time getting away from it. I'm not a gardener, but gardeners tell me that with tomato plants, if you ever have a branch that has like three branches coming off it, get rid of the middle one. It'll never produce a tomato. All it'll do is suck energy from the rest of the vine. Am I right about that? I've had a lot of people tell me that that's true. Our father is the vine dresser, and he gets rid of the branches that suck life out of us without producing fruit, you see. Now, we all think it's going to hurt. Jesus didn't say that. Jesus did not say, when father prunes, it hurts. That's the way I hear it preached all the time. But he didn't say that. It doesn't mean it never would, of course. But who wouldn't like to get rid of, like, a sore tooth or something, you know, that just drains your energy? And Jesus is saying, now listen, you're going to have to trust our love and allow father to prune those things out that suck life out of you without producing fruit. Anger would be a primary life sucker. Well, just think about it. How much of your energy gets consumed. Murder is wrong. Now, by the way, we don't have time to go into this. If you're interested in this subject, let me recommend a little book to you called The Abolition of Man by C.S. Lewis. It has an appendix to it that talks about the Tao, and he does a survey of all the major cultures and uh, how uh, there's so much commonality, really, in, in uh, understanding what's right and wrong. But anyway, murder is never right. Nobody, even the, you know, the uh, uh, ISIS people don't think murder is right. Uh, you know, it's always war that's fine. It's always okay to kill your enemy, not your friend. Cannibals the same. They aren't really that much different from us. They only kill the people. They only eat the people they kill. But they don't kill their friends. That's not right. They have a very strong... Uh, a sense of right and wrong about that. <laughs> but remaining from murder does not make a person good. Would you agree with that? Or you know, I mean, refraining from it. Refraining from murder doesn't make a person good. That's actually relatively easy to do. The problem is anger and contempt. So what would you do if you could get away with it, is my question earlier. And I'm saying underlying almost all hum human evil are these two scourges of the human heart, namely anger and contempt. So Jesus says uh, anger is the root problem, but there's a deeper problem yet. 
and it's contempt. Now, anger is just a, a immediate emotion that is, uh, arises when your will is thwarted. It could be, you know, hitting your thumb. It could be someone saying something. Oh, how often it's just someone saying something, and you hear it, and it's an offense to you. And by the way, anger usually involves self-righteousness. Now, let me explain what I mean with that. Well, how dare you say that about me? Especially if it's criticism of my character or that I interpret that way. Yesterday, remember, we talked about how one of the great worldview questions is, who is a good person? And I said, every single human being wants to be considered good. Even the terrible ones, they really want to be considered good. If not, you just challenge them sometime face to face and tell them they're not good. Oh, they don't like it. They always have a reason for what they've done. As soon as you have to make a reason for what you've done, you prove that you want to be considered good. So there's a rationale. There's an excuse. It's a powerful urge to want to be good, and it ought to be a powerful urge. After all, we were created in the image of a very, very good God. That's an understatement. A perfectly good, holy, wonderful God. So underlying almost all those needs, anger uh, is... uh, arises when just as a flash in the pan sort of thing immediately and then settles in if we let it. We just I know this deserves a lot more conversation. I know the questions that are arising in your some of your minds and we just don't have time to deal with them all, but let me just say Jesus is saying anger by and large is extremely destructive the human personality. We were not designed for it. Contempt is worse. Contempt is that word reka that Jesus uses. It literally means empty-headed. That's what the word means. It is saying about some person or to some person or not even saying, just considering that they have no value. that they're worthless to you. Now, this can be done in any number of ways. You could just think about all the ways this could be done. But it's regarding another human being of no value. Sometimes this is the roll of the eyes. Reka, contempt. Contempt. Anger and contempt are the two things Jesus deals with uh, right at the outset. These are the root evils in the human personality that must be fixed. Uh, interest, there's a very interesting study by a psychiatrist out in California, and he got to where he said, I can predict in, within the first 15 minutes of an interview with a married couple, I can predict with the 80% um, certainty whether their marriage is going to last or not. And he said the one thing he's looking for, trying to discern in that 15 minutes, is whether there's contempt in the eyes of at least one of the spouses for the other. And he said, 
is as these things go, not in humor or anything else, not in jest, but as real discussions go on, even in the first 15 minutes, he says, I can raise the percentage well above 80% if one of them rolls their eyes with regard to the other. Now, isn't that interesting? You could eliminate virtually all human dysfunction if you only solved anger and contempt. Now, you know it's true if you really think about it. Jesus knows this. Now, he says there's another even deadlier combination, and that's when you put the two together. Now, contempt, by the way, uh, I'm going backwards. Um, I think I have something up here. Oh, anger is the posture of heart, and it's good. I want to go back to this. Anger is a posture of our heart aimed at injuring another's heart, whether expressed in overt action, words, looks, or refusal to speak or look. It aims to hurt, and it does. It is ill will aimed toward another's will or heart or spirit. Those are all fairly synonymous aspects of the human personality. But Jesus has very good news for us. The kingdom of, he of heaven is available, and he can help us learn to have, to be rid of, to not be destroyed by anger. We really can become what our hearts yearn to be, which is whole. But we have to follow his advice to get there. Now, anger feeds anger. We know sowing to the flesh of the flesh shall reap corruption. We often tend to think about this thing, I think, in other terms than just anger, but that is uh, where we ought to be thinking about it first and foremost. Uh, imagine then becoming the kind of person who is free from anger, uh, but contempt means you're worthless. Now, you can do that by just turning your back. It's very, very... I don't even want to tell you how often I discover that I have in my heart some measure of contempt. I just see a particular person, and all of a sudden, I mean, it's not even someone I know, and all of a sudden I begin to make conclusions about them from their appearance or whatever, and, or maybe the way they talk, their language, or whatever, I just start to think of them, oh, and I'm the one, you know, whose thoughts are uh, contemptuous, and I'm the one trapped in it, and it is insidious, certain classes of people, certain categories of people, certain races of people, certain genders, certain all sorts of things. Primarily, the ones I know the best. Contempt is not primarily a problem for ISIS, me, me for them. My primary problem is my contempt for a neighbor or a relative, because if I can solve that, it's a lot easier to solve contempt for ISIS than it is for somebody I have to live with. 
contempt excludes the one held in contempt from our acceptance. It severs the human bond. Now, yesterday we mentioned the fact that in this uh, the what's the nature of reality question or the uh, the question of being. What is the nature of reality? And I said it's, the, it's God and his kingdom. It's God and the, and the Trinitarian reality. The, what lies beneath everything is the Trinity. Now, we all know that on paper, but it, we need to understand the implications of that. When I'm created in the image of God now, I'm created for intimate fellowship with the Trinity and for everybody else God has created in his image. I'm, I'm, this is the problem of Cain, of course, with Abel. Abel. Cain had anger and contempt for Abel, and look what happened. You see, The Bible is the greatest literature there is. It's more than just literature. It's history, but oh my goodness, it's better literature than Homer or Virgil or Shakespeare. It's unbelievable because it really depicts the way things are. And here is, a, here is the, right in the beginning, what do we see is anger and contempt. And what do we see today? And Jesus is addressing it first. Anger and contempt. This is still the problem. And it, what, this is what happens. Whenever we are refusing fellowship, whenever we are refusing acceptance, whenever we are refusing receiving someone else in, uh, being hospitable, if you will, with our own hearts, we are having contempt. We are saying, you are not worthy of my attention. Jesus knows that this is a horrible evil. We were created for fellowship. But you fool is the, con- is the combination of anger and contempt. It's angry contempt. It's lashing out at someone. Now, you fool today. I, I don't know about when, you, when I was a kid, I could not say the word fool. My parents would not let me. I would be in big trouble if I said the word fool. I just found a way around it and said things like idiot and jerk and moron. And of course, this is a good place to mention that Jesus is not giving us a stricter set of rules than Moses had given us. He is telling us, I want you to understand what the real purpose of it all is. Always was, but by this time completely misunderstood, misdirected even by the religious experts. So he says, what I want you to understand is this angry contempt. This is saying to someone, you are wholly worthless contempt because you are incurably evil. You're wholly worthless because you're incurably evil. That's what this, um, the meaning of the, of the language behind that you fool, which you now, you know, that has just gotten to be a very tame word. That's not the point. The point is, how do we view people? And uh, that's the problem. So a practical application uh, very, very practical. Now, we, we, Jesus says, oh, by the way, he says if it's your turn uh, to give an all, uh, a gift at the altar, you're, and this, by the way, would happen only sometimes. This is a very high and holy occasion. This, think about a, a, a marriage, a wedding. 
or perhaps a baptism or an ordination service. So perhaps you're at your ordination service and it hits you. I've never made it right with Sue. Jesus says, tell the ordination council, we're going to have to postpone this. I have a higher priority. Now, you say that's ridiculous. Well, this is where we decide whether Jesus is smart or not. Do we think that some very, very significant religious uh, activity is more important than mending the human bond that's been severed. If we do, we've uh, not even gotten out of kindergarten in Jesus' apprenticeship class. I'm going to tell you that if we only got what we've talked about so far today, our families and our churches and our communities would be revolutionized which is just what Jesus hoped would happen. This is what he intended when he meant, you're the salt, you're the light. If we water it down to mean something like, let me get a megaphone and preach on the streets of Chicago. I was in Chicago. I don't like big cities very well, but I was there with my family a week or two ago to see uh, Max McLean do The Reluctant Convert, which is a story of C.S. Lewis, and it's this wonderful play. Um, and I like Max and other things he's done, and so we went down there. But one of the things that was happening there in the streets of Chicago, there was a, there was a guy, uh, you know, with his soapbox and, and his Bible, and he was preaching to the crowds as they went by, and I'm not dissing that whatsoever. That's not my point. My point is if that's what we think will solve the problem, we have not gotten on a kindergarten yet. What solves the problem is when we actually live our lives as Jesus would live them. And unity among our nighbors, neighbors, the, the, the folks who are nigh us, unity among those folks is what will let everybody else know that Jesus is the real McCoy, the real deal. Now, I didn't make this up. Just read John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer, and you'll see that when Jesus is talking to Abba, he says, now this is how they will know the world will know that you sent me. When they are one, just as we are one. Now, I, I, I guarantee that in this size of a group, there's probably a good percentage of us have something to do now. We have something to do now. We, we know by the Spirit of God that there's someone we need to approach. As Paul says, in as much as it lies within you, live at peace with everybody. Not a peace, by the way, that just turns its back, but a peace that approaches and reconciles. Imagine if the peace Jesus had won was just turning his back. Oh, no. Read Colossians 1. He was reconciling all things to himself by the blood of his cross. How much did it cost him to make peace with us? 
this is, if, it, Jesus said, it's not, this, I'm not giving you a smooth, easy path here. But I'm telling you, if you yoke up with me, you'll find my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And once you determine I'm going to be apprenticed with Jesus and start making progress, you'll be surprised at how quickly the progress is and how much you'll just detest alienation from another person. And you will hardly be able to stand it until you can get with them and look in their eyes and say, I am so sorry if I have done anything that would cause you to be alienated from me. And uh, just, anyway, imagine a group of people like that. Now, um, another application, uh, Jesus said, is just settling matters quickly. Now, if we think Jesus is giving us these sort of little rules now that we're going to add to all the other rules of the Pharisees and the scribes, we have missed it completely. Jesus didn't say, now, there are no exceptions to this rule. He's saying, think about the kind of a heart that you would have if somebody sues you rather than go, you would say, can we get this fixed? Can we just resolve this? Can we, can, you know, I don't want to be alienated from you. I don't want to burn my bridges with you. I, I, I want to be, you know, fine with you. What will it take? Okay, I'm going to betray something. I was determined not to betray this. I'm a lawyer. So they're, they're going to be like two of you tomorrow. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I want to tell you that Jesus is the most brilliant legal advisor I've ever known. I just want to tell you that. That's why I had to preface it that way. I want you to know that whenever I've been able to convince a client to reconcile, it's been beautiful. And whenever you can't, it's disastrous. Oh, I don't mean they, I don't do litigation. I gave that up years ago. I just couldn't stomach it. But I do lots and lots of business counseling. I call it marital counseling for corporations. And uh, most companies I know that fail, fail because their uh, owners don't get along, not because they didn't have a good idea. Dysfunction in all sorts of relationships. Uh, you know, probating estates and administering trusts. Oh my goodness, you, you know, you just wouldn't believe all these people that have been saved as long as I have and going, going to church as long as I have and all that sort of thing when it comes to dividing up the family farm, and I do mean that literally sometimes, oh my goodness, and I try and talk to them. I can remember one conversation right now I'm just thinking of distinctly, a guy that's you know been teaching Sunday school and so on and so forth for decades in his own church and just a, a sort of a model family. And uh, I, they're sitting in my office, and I'm trying to tell him that he ought to do something reasonable that he doesn't want to do. And he says, at what cost, John? At what cost? Well, at what cost was Jesus willing to reconcile you? Where do you think life comes from? 
Jesus is either brilliant or he's just naive. And we often think Jesus is just naive. Sometimes it wouldn't cost a dime. Just pick up the telephone, will you? Go just look in their face. Maybe some tears would help. Some true remorse. Somebody here needs this. I'm guaranteeing in this group, somebody needs this. And just you're going to just have a choice now. Make a, you know, go to the piano and play at least your first set of scales. And you'll be surprised at the progress you can make. A kingdom heart loves. Now, we know this. This is the great commandment. Uh, these illustrations are not laws. Oh, my goodness, let's see. I can't, well, but if I do that, my kids won't have any food and shoes. And Jesus isn't talking about that. What do you want to do, really? Where's your heart, really? Jesus isn't meaner than Moses, to borrow a line from Dallas Willard. Speaking of Dallas Willard, let me just interrupt and say that, you know, I owe an incredible debt to Dallas Willard in his teachings uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. And if you want more on this subject, which you should, get his book, The Divine Conspiracy, and um, read his treatment of the Sermon on the Mount is by far the best I've ever had. Uh, so there, that's, a, that's just, I was going to say it's an advertisement, it's really not, it's just a confession. Dallas Willard, W-I-L-L-A-R-D. The Divine Conspiracy. Well, Jesus is the supreme example of this, of course, as we know. When they hurled their insults at him, uh, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to one who judges uprightly. If there was anybody ever who deserved to have self-righteousness and, and contempt for other people who mistreated the truth, it's Jesus. What was his posture? Father, forgive them. That is freedom. How would you like to actually become the kind of person who would immediately bless those who curse you just because you would have find it hard to do the other thing? Now that's freedom. Now you can just imagine what it would be like to be liberated from that tension, you know, that comes when someone mistreats you. Of course that doesn't mean somebody needs to stay in an abusive situation. Not, Jesus isn't stupid. He's brilliant, but he knows what the posture of a heart is that's actually free. Likewise, Paul, of course, exhorted us, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it's written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. So that's the first section I wanted to get through today. And we have about uh, 17 minutes to get through the next one. But that's okay. Uh, obviously, that's okay. We will get out relatively on time. Lunch starts at 1, right? <laughs> yeah. And you, you, have, uh, <laughs> you have heard that it was said, Jesus says, thou shalt not commit adultery. But, but again, the real question is, have you wanted to?
I don't remember. Oh, yeah, I can go back one slide, sure. 27 to 32. So there's order to Jesus' talk on the hill. You would expect so, right? I mean, he's brilliant. He's giving this is his core curriculum on how to flourish as a human being, how to apprentice with him, how to be that person, the truth sets free. The person who, remember he says at the end of the sermon, is the, no matter what storm comes against you in life, it will not tip you over. How does that happen? Jesus is teaching us how that happens. Imagine how, what strength of character you'd have if you just didn't have any capacity to be mad at somebody because they mistreated you. What, bring it on, you know. It doesn't going to hurt. It's amazing, amazing what it would be like. Okay, so there's order to Jesus' talk on the hill, and now he moves on to fantasized desire. Fantasized desire. It involves a form of contempt. I mean, you just think about this for a little bit. Remember, contempt is basically saying you have no value as a person. Fantasized desire says you have no value as a person other than to satisfy my desires. So fantasized desire always has an element of contempt, whether it's pornography or real live action, whatever it is. If it's fantasized desire, whether it's in a romance novel, some of you women say, I've never had a pornography problem. But the real question is, would you rather be married to the person you're reading about than the person you are married to? And if that's a problem, you probably better stop. Fantasized desire has all to do with how we view a person. And, how we, and it's impossible to be fantasizing our desire of, over them and loving them at the same time. And of course, we think, the opposite, because we have no idea what love is. But fantasized desire desires uh, involves a form of contempt. Now, the good thing is I have six things to talk about here in relatively uh, quick order, so we probably make some pretty good time through this. First of all, it's again about the heart, not behavior issues only. Of course behavior issues matter, it, and it's a snare of the enemy, not liberation. Oh my goodness! How he, you know, we are told that, you know, just be free, you know, be free. And the truth is it's bondage. Just bondage. And uh, uh, this is a very interesting point you wouldn't have expected in here. Not all that we fear is lust actually is. Lust is not just temptation. Lust is intentional. It's consenting with the will. <coughs> consenting with the will. There are some really bad translations of this text, by the way. The, the best translation is something like this. I'm telling you, the person who is looking for the purpose of lusting. That purpose clause is in there. For the purpose of. So it doesn't just say, as some translations would say, uh, the, the, the man who looks at a woman and lusts after her. No, that's not what it says. It says, for the purpose of, with the intent that. What's, their, what's in their heart about it? So that's a good news, actually. 
uh, well, it's all good news, but I mean, that's, that gives a little, little bit of a relief because uh, any one of us is quite capable of looking at someone else and saying, now that would be an interesting person to get to know. And then we have to be so careful and say, but no, no, no. Temptation is not the same as lust. Temptation is temptation, and we want to stay out of it. Lead us not into temptation. We want to stay out of it. But it is not sin until my will consents. It's very important. There's more discussion on that, by the way, in Willard's book, uh, for sure. Actual adultery is way worse. Now, you can, you know, you just know this. So Jesus says, well, if you look at a person uh, to lust after them that you've already committed adultery in your heart, you might as well go all the way. No, no. Destruction. <laughs> destruction. Destruction. Do you think that's a novel rationale? How, don't you suppose that virtually everybody who ever said they believed in Jesus who committed adultery didn't go through that thought process? if they were thinking at all, unlike, you know, or just an ox, like led to the slaughter, you know, here, take me, take me, take me. <laughs> well, lust and adultery both violate the two commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Loving, that it violates that commandment and love your neighbor as yourself. It doesn't violate love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength and mind because you're loving that person you're fantasizing about. No, you're not. You're not loving them. You don't have their best interests in mind. You want to consume them. What it does, though, is create an idol so that you're not loving the Lord your God anymore. It's something now that your heart wants more than God. So you violated the first commandment. And you violated the second commandment because it's the opposite of love for that person. It's not in their best interest. You probably don't even care about their interest at all. And if you fooled yourself into thinking this would be best for them, you just are completely upside down about it. There has never been adultery under the right circumstances at the right time with the right person ever. Ever. And Jesus knows this. Jesus, you know, he's not living in some other world somewhere. He knows exactly what the human problems are. And so he jumps right into them. And he says, if you want a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you want a righteousness that will allow you to actually be the hope of the world, the salt of the earth and the light of the world, you're going to have to understand that all everybody, I, God's been saying from the very beginning, and what I'm saying is, you need a new heart. You need a revolutionized heart. Of course you're going to have to be reconciled to me. Your sins are going to have to be forgiven. You're going to have to be born again. But we all know there are plenty of people who've been born again. Every single person in this room who's born again that has committed some of these sins. Probably all of them. And probably many times. I want to be free of it. I want to be free of it. I want to sign up for Jesus' curriculum on how to be free of it. And, of course, it won't be, you know, just sitting in around chairs looking at the back of someone's head. It's going to be actually getting out there with Jesus in the warp and woof of human existence to uh, learn of him. 
Jesus, that's the sixth thing. Aren't you glad? Jesus offers liberation from all of these snares, including uh, this one. Well, there's a quote uh, that I wanted to just read to you, but if you have access to that uh, PDF, uh, www.wingshadowministries.org forward slash Bayshore, you'll find this little booklet, and um, there's a quote, what page did I say it was on? 24 and 25, and I'm going to kind of read quickly just because I'm sensitive to the clock here. This is Dallas Willard directly now. I just loved this. I had to put it in here. It's almost conceivable today that the rightness or wrongdoing of sexual intercourse would have nothing whatsoever to do with what now passes for romantic love. I mean, just even think Hallmark Channel, okay? Even they're upside down. It's all about the romance. Yet that is the biblical view generally, that it has nothing to do with romance. The rightness of sex is tied instead to a solemn and public covenant for life between two individuals, and sexual arousal and delight is a response to the gift of a uniquely personal intimacy with the whole person that each partner has conferred in enduring faithfulness upon the other. Intimacy is the mutual mingling of souls who are taking each other into themselves to ever-increasing depths. The truly erotic is the mingling of souls. Because we are free beings, intimacy cannot be passive or forced. And because we are finite, it must be exclusive. This is the metaphysical and spiritual reality that underlies the bitter violation of self experienced by the betrayed mate. It also makes clear the scarred and shallow condition of those who betray. The profound misunderstandings of the erotic that prevail today actually represent the inability of humanity in its current Western edition to give itself to others and receive them in abiding faithfulness. Personal relationship has been emptied out to the point where intimacy is not when intimacy is, poss is, is not possible. Uh, quite naturally, then, we say, why not, when contemplating adultery? If there is nothing there to be broken, why worry about breaking it? One of the most telling things about contemporary human beings is that they cannot find a reason for not committing adultery. Yet intimacy is a spiritual hunger of the human soul and we cannot escape it. We now keep hammering the sex button in the hope that a little intimacy might finally dribble out in vain. For intimacy comes only in the framework of an individualized faithfulness within the kingdom of God. Such faithfulness is violated by adultery in the heart as well as by adultery in the body. 
Uh, you'll have a hard time absorbing that, of course, upon hearing me just read it. But I encourage you uh, to get that and read it. And I know immediately you're going to be thinking about people to whom you should disseminate it. That's okay. <laughs> but really, take it into yourself and say, okay, well, I've never committed adultery. I don't need this. Well, then you missed it. One of my very favorite lines in that whole thing and about this whole subject is from him, and it's in there. The truly erotic is the mingling of souls. And Jesus knows this. Jesus is smart. He knows that sexual freedom is not freedom, it's bondage. He knows what we were meant to live on, what, how, what we were meant to consume, what we were meant to flourish, and we need intimacy, and because we're finite, that must be limited. Well, our outward obedience to the law, as the scribes and Pharisees propounded, will simply not prevent any of these fatal maladies Jesus has discussed so far. You can have a Sunday school pin that goes back five decades, you know? You probably don't have any of those anywhere anymore, but when I was growing up as a kid, you know, we had these little pins, and you could take the center out every time you advanced a few years or whatever and put a new one in and wore it on your little suit coat as you went to church. And look how long I've been here. Now we have other little more sophisticated ways. Anger, contempt, and fantasized desire are the scourge. He makes this point abundantly clear with his illustration of plucking out eyes and cutting off hands. If your eye's the problem, said Jesus, cut out your eye. If your hand is the problem, cut out your hand, off your hand. Once both eyes were gone, of course, you could not look upon a woman at all. But that wouldn't help. You might have to cut off your ears, too, because they have telephones now, and you can, you know, can fantasize with a telephone, or you can... You don't have to ears or sight. I mean, you could be a Helen Keller and still have problems because it's your heart. It's your heart. And Jesus knows this, and this is what he's saying. It doesn't help if you just roll into heaven a mutilated stump. <laughs> it's what's inside. It's what do you want. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean, Jesus says. For from within, out of the men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from the inside. And Jesus is all about helping us learn to be different on the inside. And this is what his brilliant advice in this message is is all about. Now, Father, that's where we're going to stop. And uh, woof, unloaded an awful lot of stuff here today. And I pray that by your spirit, you would just pare away anything that's not helpful, but that with your spirit, you would also leave to grow and bear much good fruit, anything that is of value. And I'll thank you for this. And we'll all thank you for it. Now, I just want to admit, Father, that um, I have not uh, I, I am not the, the, uh, the epitome 
or the uh, pinnacle at all of these things. It's Jesus. And it was him we look to. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. Who was in all points tempted, even as we are, and never messed up once. And yet, he is so ready to let us just get up and move on to the next step. Thank you, Jesus, that your perfection has not caused you to turn your back on me. Instead, it has said, come on, let's, let me, let's get up. Let's, let me help you. Let's move forward. And so please, Father, let, I'm just thinking of Paul now, who said, forgetting what is behind, I will press on toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Help us with this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. a camp like this where you're sort of away from other stuff and it's a great opportunity to make a decision actually a decision that says I actually want to apprentice with Jesus that's a completely different decision than saying I want to go to heaven when I die no I want to be a student I want to be an apprentice I'm going to sign up with you know Jesus the Ben Carson of how to live life you know or the or whatever, I could pick names, but uh, I won't pick names. Uh, in terms of this experts in various fields, yes, I want to sign up with Jesus because he knows that it won't always be simple, but I'm going to gradually grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of apprenticing with Jesus. Oh, my goodness. There's nobody else anywhere that knows anything about how to flourish as a human being like he does. And what you're trying to do is just reinstate us, restore us, rehydrate us to the person you had in mind in the beginning. Please help us believe and really believe that Jesus is the one who knows how to help us with this and then just commit to following him. Thank you for the fact that you're with us in this. We are not doing this on our own. Uh, we couldn't take the first step without you. But you've promised to be here. Your grace is here. Your grace, your energy, your activity is sufficient. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.